Matthew, what are two or three things that people must get right to create indigenous digital communities? The three most important things are, you know, transparency and authenticity, accountability and consequences, and a deep connection to community. Without that connection to community and without the accountability that comes with that, I think there are significant risks about moving forward in this new environment. You're listening to One Feather, Two Pens. Lessons and stories from Indigenous peoples building and navigating digital sovereignty. A special series on What's That Noise? Hello to our listeners across Turtle Island, our family, our friends, our allies, our brothers and sisters. I'm going to take a moment to do a quick land acknowledgement. And we're going to do this not as a new practice developed by colonial institutions or kind of modern, new kind of way of thinking. We've always done this. We've always done a land acknowledgement. And it's a tradition dating back for centuries with many Native communities and nations. And for non-Indigenous communities, uh, a land acknowledgement is really a, a powerful way of showing respect uh, and an honor for Indigenous people, and in particular in Canada, f- with regard to our unique relationship with you and with, and with Canada, and as your neighbors, and as your friends, and as your family. And the acknowledgement is really just a simple way of resisting, if you like, the erasure of, of Indigenous history and working towards honoring and living and inviting truth. And so we make space today for that. Uh, here in this podcast to do an acknowledgement. And so I'm going to acknowledge where I'm where I'm at uh, and invite you to do the same uh, while you're listening. So I'd like to acknowledge that I'm here on the traditional territories of the Songhees and Esquimalt people, the uh, Lekwungen speaking people, that I have the benefit and the privilege and the honor and the love of working, playing, and raising my family here in your traditional and unceded territories. And it's with great honor and gratitude that I'm thankful for the opportunity to do that. It's in my hand, in my language, we would say, Kesla, and I raise my hands. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Lawrence. Our guest today is an Indigenous rights advocate and member of the Lac La Range Indian Band in Northern Saskatchewan. He is the president of the Urban Native Youth Association, a board member of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, the co-chair for the Vancouver Just Recovery Association, and he sits on the BC Climate Secretariat's Indigenous Climate Adaptation Working Group. He is also pursuing a PhD at UBC with a focus on the implementation of international Indigenous rights frameworks, which I'm selfishly really excited about as a fellow phd It's my pleasure to have on the show Matthew Norris. And Matthew, where to begin? At such a young age, you've already accomplished so much. I am struggling to figure out how you prioritize it all as an educator, as a researcher, as a community member, as an advocate, as somebody who's involved in politics and policy. What's keeping you busy these days? What is at the top of your mind? I mean, you did a fairly comprehensive uh, introduction. <laughs> all right, we're done. So. Thank you. <laughs> See you later, guys. Cue the music. Impressive. Impressive guy. But uh, yeah, I've been working on like underimplementation uh, has been like a primary passion of mine uh, for a long time, just kind of to realize its potential as an international mechanism that finally applies universal basic human rights to Indigenous people. Uh, and we're finally seeing some momentum building uh, at the federal government and the provincial government and within cities across uh, across Canada. 
So that's been taking up a lot of my time. I've, I've started a new position as a senior policy analyst with the BC Assembly of First Nations, focusing on UNDRIP implementation. I've I've got a, a book chapter that's going to be published fairly soon. Um, I don't know if I can share too much about it, but <laughs> it's a thing and it's coming. Um, uh, I've uh, also been doing a lot of work and kind of advocacy around uh, urban indigenous uh, uh, communities. And so I'm the president of the Urban Native Youth Association in Vancouver, um, where we're uh, looking at kind of creating an indigenous keystone community within Vancouver and getting it recognized in terms of a building and a youth center and post-secondary education and indigenous housing and 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 what under it means for uh urban indigenous communities i think that's an important conversation that we're, we're starting to have now and it's what my research has been focused on a lot of writing that i do mm. um on how to kind of repair the kind of rifts in our communities that are have been resulting from colonialism so i've been mm. doing that in the in the fall, I, I ran for city council in Vancouver. That was a that was a time in my life that that happened. Um, but uh, I mean, and it's all related. Like that, the decision to do that was also directly related to uh, my belief that we needed we needed more indigenous representation and decision making tables and and the role that cities can play in in uh, addressing some of the discrimination and marginalization of it, not only the urban indigenous communities, but host nations that whose territory cities live on. Cities have a big role to play in that. And, you know, we haven't seen representation in that area for, for a while. And, um, but so I've been keeping busy, I think, to say the least. <laughs> Generally, when I encounter people who are um, doing a doctorate, they don't usually have all of this other stuff and experience going on too. So yeah, I, I think it might be fair to say that you've been keeping quite busy. And, you know, I, I'm getting the sense already in this episode that we could easily do like a mini series just on your experience and your focuses. On the one hand, I'm I'm really compelled and curious to ask about um, UN DRIP and international indigenous rights framework, because this is a really interesting uh, moment in the genesis of One Feather, Two Pens. We generally talk about Canada. We generally talk about digital space that we hope to think, doesn't always have discernible, obvious cartographies and boundaries that sovereigns chop out for one another or the corporations chop out to include or exclude certain populations. But on the other, we have this really interesting opportunity to talk about urban architecture and intersections with the digital. And so I want to put it out to you, if, if I may, to, to kick off our first question here. When, when you do your work and research around indigeneity and urban spaces, whether it's local or it's global, where, where does the digital come up for you? Is it um, spaces and, and moments or opportunities that are progressive? Um, do you encounter them as hindrances or is there something that I, I, I could be missing here down the middle? I think it's, I mean, it's changed so much even in recent years. Like my, the, the research I did and the, and, the, and the way that you connected with community even 10 years ago has shifted so much. It, in the face mm -hmm. of digital evolution and change and tools and communities uh, that have been created. And so it's kind of a new frontier, which has, you know, a ton of opportunities um, that are exciting and, and make certain projects easier and certain ways of doing things and advocacy and um, support our rights-based movements. And that's exciting. And then at the same time, 
there's pitfalls uh, mm-hmm. with this new digital environment too, that um, because it's so new, I don't know if we've had that conversation yet about how do we engage in this? How do we avoid the pitfalls? How do we create a digital community? And I think that's the critical world is word is digital community. How do we create a community that avoids uh, the pitfalls that we're starting to see? And it comes up, you know, if we're talking about uh, how, how I as an indigenous person has used uh, digital community uh, or how uh, I've seen um, division within digital areas kind of get reinforced and, um, and the impacts of that on uh, our, our political momentum and, and what we saw during the municipal election in Vancouver and what we see in elections across the country and, and how that impacts uh, the Indigenous rights uh, goals and objectives. And, and so it's, it's a fascinating conversation to have. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's this um, there's this real risk that if uh, this, as we create this digital community, that we're, we will lose um, control of it. And I don't know that we have control of it now, so to speak. But if you if you kind of kind of let that kind of play out a little bit, that it's important that we create some sacredness around this space, so that it's created in a way that embraces our values and principles, so that it's not a toxic thing. It's really a community building thing, and it's a space for conversation and discussion and how we build that. And what are the rules of engagement around that? Just like in our cultural and social practices or in our past political practices, like what are the rules of engagement here? And I think I think a lot of us don't know. We're just out there kind of doing our thing. And I think I when I think about how um, the amazing and scarily fast evolution of AI is happening in the background right now. Like we're starting to use it from some of our programming and some of our, some content generation even. And it is just insane how scary that is. You know, I feel like we're always just drowning under this stuff and just trying to get to the surface to find, make space for our own communities and, and perspective. And what's your advice or guidance on kind of framing that or, or how do we navigate that? I think we have to do it consciously. I think, yeah. I think like I, I mean, I'm no expert in, in this, in, in like digital environments and, and ethics and all that sort of stuff. Like that's not my field of expertise, but the way I see it is, 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 is this a tool or is this going to be a hindrance in mm. addressing, you know, impacts of colonization on our people yeah. in addressing socioeconomic, um, quality of life standards you know is it going to be a tool in that regards and and i see yes but i think with anything the risk is i think the risk is seeing it as this kind of neutral space as mm-hmm. not being influenced by by you know systems of power or marginalization that exist in mm-hmm. every other form of life if we assume that this digital environment digital community is is immune from that that has carries risks, I think. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so when we talk about, you know, like what are the uses of it right now? There's a ton. Like I, when we look at our communities that have been, you know, divided both physically, uh, but culturally, um, and you know, you're removed from your community, your language, mm-hmm. uh, your culture. Um, it's now a great time to reconnect through, digital communities Hmm. like how many you have access to so many more resources now than you have had 10 years ago Mm -hmm. to learn about your language to learn about your culture to learn about you know your community and and your family it's more readily available now 
but with that, you know, comes risk too. Yeah. And great responsibility, right? Like with, what's that? I don't know what that saying is, but with great power comes great responsibility. I'm not sure if that's accurate or not, but it's, it's, it is, it is, uh, it is one of those things, right? And I think about how, from a traditional perspective, right? And I, in terms of how we used to conduct ourselves is that folks would spend a good portion of their lives being trained to fulfill a role, right? And they would be elevated to that role when community thought they were ready, right? So it's a bit different now. I mean, you've got this incredible educational background and experience and you're, you're completing your PhD and, and you've got this tremendous skill set and potential in making all these contributions and all this kind of amazing amazing ways how do you reconcile that with that kind of traditional kind of perspective I don't, I don't mean that in a negative way i'm just like how do we how do we bridge the gap or how do we create space for folks who are listening to this maybe young folks who are listening to this and say yeah i want to go down this path and i'm a little bit afraid how do we help them navigate whatever that looks like mm -hmm. and, I, and i think it's you know it comes back to community again it mm -hmm. comes back to being in community and holding yourself accountable to that community, yeah. like wherever you go. And so if you look at that within, within academia, uh, if you choose to go that route, if you choose to go into politics or, or rights advocacy work or what have you, you need to build the processes and the mechanisms that hold you accountable to the community that you are working on behalf mm -hmm. of. It's, it's absolutely critical. And, and when you look at, you know, what systems of power, um, and influence exists within these spaces, like like academic institutions or or our political institutions within the city. They weren't built by our people for our people, representing how our people do things and make decisions and, and relate to each other. And so, being mindful of that and mindful how you know, I think it was I think it was Dr. Dale Turner who talks about how we need word warriors, I think is how he mm -hmm. calls it, in these institutions advocating on behalf of our people and using the the power that's inherent with these these institutions mm -hmm. to advocate and push for change, but at the same time recognizing that these institutions also change the people yeah. working within them. Yeah. Because you have to work within them. There's different pulls and pushes and and mm -hmm. so to protect yourself from that, it's about building community and building accountability to the community that you want to represent. So they are the ones holding mm. you accountable uh, in relationship with them uh, for your actions and your decisions. And I think that applies to the digital space too. And like that's one of my big concerns with the with the digital environment is is it's it seems like it's easier to skirt that accountability. Oh yeah. And so how do we build? community accountability in a digital environment? Um, I think that's a big question. Yeah, it is a big question. And if I can circle back to my introduction that was apparently comprehensive, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I find myself still really fascinated with the international focus of your work. Um, as I said before, we, we have a, a kind of a more domestic focus as, as a starting point in the show. And, and here we are, um, talking to somebody who is indigenous and is studying um, UN. And when I think about international frameworks and international bodies that try to regulate and try to standardize, I start mm. scratching my my head and I say, um, what's at stake in trying to standardize or universalize? When you look at international mm. law, for example, as soon as you start establishing the principles, the precedents, the the guiding points, the frameworks, um, I think sometimes what's at stake of what's being lost is nuance. 
um, mm. especially when it comes to identity. So I'm wondering if if we could maybe just riff and rhyme a little bit when it comes to accountability of the international institution. You know, what can you tell sure. us what you've seen that they're getting right and perhaps what they're not getting right? Yeah, sure. I think I mean I mean kind of getting back to my original point about about addressing power imbalances and in, in the kind of origin their um how these institutions get created and, and who creates them. You look at the international system, it was fairly predominantly created without indigenous people. <laughs> and so it's only, it's only le- in the last, you know, 20 years, I think is, is maybe a generous account even where you've had indigenous voices and indigenous participation at international forum, mm-hmm. uh, with the ability to actually drive norms and change actions and, 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 uh, have an impact on states, uh, intentions. And, um, and that's significant. And so, and once again, it's, it's kind of just scaling up the same question about the kind of impacts and responsibilities of indigenous people in academia or, or domestic political institutions. And now at the international level where it's about mm-hmm. accountability and it's about community building. And so when you look at like the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, is it, it's, it was primarily uh, the result of a network of indigenous uh, leaders from across the world who are able to connect to each other, to learn from each other mm-hmm. and to recognize similarities within their experiences mm-hmm. in a variety of different countries and to take that lesson to the, uh, to the international forums and then advocate for real change. And mm-hmm. so, and, you know, and then reconnecting that back to this digital conversation is that that's the potential is being able to learn and not have to operate in silos that, you know, was, you know, the divide and conquer ideology of colonialism. It was now we can fight back against that by building networks and building communities with not only different indigenous nations and communities within Canada, but also internationally who share an experience, who share lessons learned, who, who, um, you know, have, have gone down different roads, uh, to try and achieve justice and decolonization and self-determination and all that, and have had different successes with different approaches and, and can share those lessons now, um, across that international divide. Now we can do that digitally, which makes it so much easier, (laughs) um, is to be able to build those networks, uh, of community, but you know, me from a one feather perspective in the work we do in this digital space, I'm trying to make space to navigate this in a good way. And I have to be honest, I mean, a lot of what we do is new and it hasn't been done before. What does it even look like when we think about making space for that and going and, and doing it in a good way? How do we marry that right to self-determination and self-government as well as free, you know, prior and informed consent around this digital space? How do we, mm. you know, those conversations are... I don't know that they're direct. I think they're more kind of elusive because when you're out there kind of creating this kind of new architecture and this new environment or this new ecosystem in this digital space, it's uh, it's pretty murky and it's pretty blurry. There's just mm. so much burden here that we're probably going to get this thing wrong. And man, oh man, I don't want to be the owner of that. So, <laughs> <laughs> but don't you need to be like, don't, uh, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's the, like when I teach students, um, 
and students always have this question about like, you know, how do you work with indigenous communities? You know, we're coming from such uh, a dearth and such a lack of kind of education on mm -hmm. the impacts of colonization and, or, and avenues for justice and indigenous people's histories and, and kind of contemporary identities and issues. There's such a lack of education Mm -hmm. From like, I, you know, when I went to high school, we weren't taught that wasn't in the curriculum and you go to university and you start engaging. And, and I think mm -hmm. things are starting to shift and change. But and so students ask, like, I don't want to mess up. I don't yeah. want to make a mistake. My intentions are good. I'm trying to do the right thing. But I feel like I'm inherently going to make a mistake or misstep. <laughs> and, I, and I don't. And and so how do I avoid that? And my advice to them has always been you're going to make a mistake and <laughs> yeah. it's the way that you handle the mistake is, is the important lesson to learn. If you right. handle it with humility and you take the leadership from the community that you're trying to work with and you're willing to open yourself up to being wrong and to kind of learning and adjusting, mm -hmm. um, that's where we need to go. Yeah. And so, and I, and, you know, taking back that again to this kind of conversation about digital space, I think the opportunity is that, we're introducing more people. We have the potential to introduce more people to the conversation who haven't had that conversation or been witness right. to that conversation. But at the same time, we're seeing we're all, we're seeing like the creation of silos, whether that's through the algorithms or what you know what media mm -hmm. sources you get sent and what articles are are pinged to your accounts or or whatnot. You also see the creation of silos where people are artificially removed from those conversations mm -hmm. and don't mm -hmm. witness them. And that is the danger of this yeah. digital space is you, when you kind of reify divisions rather than bridging uh, different communities to have a discussion. Yeah. It also breeds a lot of uh, conspiracy theory, right? Around what is happening, which may not be in fact happening at all. I mean, this is the, this is the untethered um, reality of this digital space, really. It's like, what is really happening? <laughs> Just like, I don't know, man. <laughs> but it's, but it's, I mean, yeah. like, that's also the interesting thing, too, is like, yeah. and I'm not an expert in this, and so I might get this wrong, and I'm open to getting it wrong and tell me if I got it wrong. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's like, it's not this like neutral space. Like, yeah. it's yeah. designed by people yeah. to have certain outcomes and interactions. Yeah. And, and then when you talk about, who is who's designing it yeah is it indigenous people are we in those rooms talking mm -hmm. about how these digital environments exist and 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 relate to others and, yeah. and what conversations uh get promoted or happen or, or allowed to happen not really yeah and so i think it's important mm -hmm. like this conversation is important to have more of um just to start kind of wedging wedging our own kind of mm. space into no, this com into this new new world yeah, yeah that's bang on I, I think that's bang on totally
When I was starting some of my studies, I remember coming across uh, an idea from uh, an author called Lawrence Lessig. He wrote a piece called uh, Code 2.0, and I remember him commenting that the world can either program or code the internet to be open, or you can code it to be closed. The coding has already been set out. It's a, it's mm. a colonial system. It's designed by people who are in uh, positions of power and have those kinds of privileges that are not often checked. They're not often corrected. And so uh, in a lot of ways, you see different communities and different groups from around the planet try to uh, build their way through this kind of architecture and run into dead ends and run into blockages that might not be intentional, but are impossible mm -hmm. to negotiate. Mm -hmm. So now I'm thinking a little bit about UN DRIP and some of the, the principles, um, some of the articles within the, the document itself, which talks about uh, different ways in which tech can enable protection. Tech mm -hmm. can um, support and elevate or bring indigenous communities around the planet up to maybe level the table a little bit and get around some of these tensions that I've been talking about. When you've been doing your studies, Matthew, or in your experience um, out in the field or through anything that you've read, could you maybe give our listeners some examples of where you you can see tech playing a role that is protective or perhaps progressive? Would that be around um, specific language roles? Would that be around cultural components? Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a more spiritual component? Mm -hmm. So the UN Declaration is like a comprehensive articulation of, of, I mean, I think it's pretty clear. I think it's pretty important to note that it doesn't create new rights. It's not this document that has finally created <laughs> Indigenous rights. So that's not what it is. It's, mm -hmm. it's an application of existing universal human rights to the particular historical and contemporary context of Indigenous peoples from around the world. Mm -hmm. So that's critical. Two, I would suggest you can't read any of the articles in isolation from each mm -hmm. other. It's a comprehensive document. And uh, if you, I say that, and now I'm going to go through the different, <laughs> the different <laughs> articles, but, but I mean, it's critical because they all speak to each other and they mm -hmm. all kind of reinforce each other. Uh, and then the third thing to emphasize is that it's, it's the minimum standard. It's yeah. not the gold standard. It's not this idea that we should, you know, look up to the UN declaration as this aspirational document. It's not. It's the very minimum that we need to do to address the ongoing marginalization, dispossession of indigenous people. Um, there are, there are declarations and, uh, international human rights mechanisms out there that go f much further than the UN declaration. Mm -hmm you know, to be clear. So set that groundwork aside. The UN Declaration does a lot. It recognizes uh, the rights of Indigenous people to self-determination, to self-government, to, to uh, sit at decision-making tables which impact their rights. Uh, it recognizes land rights, uh, rights to culture, to languages, to education, child care. Uh, it addresses, uh, it contains articles that address uh, racism and discrimination against Indigenous peoples. Um, and so it sets out all of these different avenues to kind of address long-going uh, marginalization. And so when you look at marginalization and when you look at like the implementation of the UN Declaration, which we're starting to see in Canada, um, the, you know, the Canadian government passed uh, a bill uh, a few years ago to begin implementation and they're currently working on a, a draft uh, national action plan in that regards. The, the province of BC came out uh, with provincial legislation a few years before that and are, are a little bit further ahead. Uh, and both those legislations are fairly similar. One, it includes 
a commitment to uh, aligning uh, every law with the UN declaration to a uh, national action plan, and then three, uh, looking at kind of accountability and reporting mechanisms, which are absolutely critical. Um, and now we're seeing municipalities starting to follow suit. So the city of Vancouver did, uh, did so through a city motion about a year and a half ago, uh, I think, if I'm getting the dates right. And so where I see digital technology coming in is, is addressing the kind of capacity concerns. So as we're seeing uh, various governments kind of going through the work of engaging nations to, to review legislation, our, our communities aren't at that point where we have the internal capacity to review mm. 20 <laughs> legislations when, when the province has yeah, yeah, 300 yeah. staff doing this yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, you look yeah. at some communities that have like one staff person, three staff persons, like 20 staff people. They can't, it's, it's a capacity concern. And so, and so when you look at how do we address kind of the capacity differentials between uh, provincial or federal governments and our, our First Nations governments, um, there's huge differentials there. And so digital technology potentially has the capacity to kind of help fill that gap and to help kind of reset uh, those power differentials. Um, but it also has, and I mean, when we, maybe we'll get to talking about um, like digital data ownership mm -hmm. and jurisdiction and how part of addressing power inequities is who controls data, who has access to data to do monitoring, to mm -hmm. not only monitor, you know, what has happened uh, to implement the UN declaration, is are ministries and departments following uh, their own plans and, and how effective are those plans to implement the UN declaration and so forth. But it even comes down to basic things like, monitoring uh, the impacts on on fish from a from a salmon farm mm -hmm. and so if if you don't have the jurisdiction over the data and the control over the data to do your own research and monitoring over those impacts and you're relying on another a third party or if you're relying on the industry if you're relying on the government to provide you that analysis that just furthers the power uh, mm -hmm. inequities uh, within those decisions so I mean, there's a lot to discuss there in terms of what role uh, does, uh, uh, you know, digital technologies play in, in kind of rebalancing that power differential on, on uh, policy legislation. Well, I mean, you, you just, you totally just blew my mind because I was just thinking about, you know, I think about one feather in our, in our, in our kind of reach in the country. We have over a hundred thousand indigenous folks verified inside of our ecosystem. And how could those folks be leveraged to, uh, by their own consent and their own willingness to do so, but participate in exactly that thought experiment you just kind of advanced was how do how could these folks be the eyes and ears of our of our people and our communities to take a look at these these legislations or these pathways or these kind of efforts to give um, some in, indigenous intelligence to what's happening? If you take my meaning right, and I, so I was thinking, man that would be super powerful and I would be excited to be a part of that, that kind of development journey. So you got, you got, you got my head spinning in my, in those wheels, you know, they're, they're kind of clunky at the end of the, at the end of the week on a Friday, but um, you really got me thinking about how powerful that tool can be uh, when used in a good way for our people. So I think uh, that's a, that's an amazing, uh, that's an amazing thing to consider. Right. And I think, I mean, that, and that's just one aspect I see, you know, and, you know, linking 
making maybe the jump here, like linking our conversations around digital technology and then linking mm-hmm. the UN declaration and the different aspects we need to achieve those goals. And it's, it's not just kind of political commitment and it's not just accountability and monitoring. Mm-hmm. Those are critical aspects of it, but it's also education. And so yeah. having a voice in the digital space has a real uh, potential to reach uh, folks who haven't heard these conversations, yeah. who haven't heard the deliberations that we're having or that communities are having. or um, And there's a real educational p- potential there too to kind of bridge um, intergenerational kind of hurt and trauma that has revo- resulted in um, a divided society that we, we seem to have, I mean, to a lesser, to some extent. You're a member of, of La Courage, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have elections coming up this uh, pretty quickly mm-hmm. here at the end of March. You know, we've seen our, our communities and our people evolve through a, a fairly robust and entrenched hereditary or culturally appropriate kind of governance system. And then with colonialization, a shift to some extent, well, to a large extent for some, through this kind of Indian Act election, kind of you mm-hmm. know, elected chief and councils. Um, and, and one of the things that's kind of starting to percolate in the back of my head is that as we introduce these digital technologies for these types of purposes, mm-hmm. do we run the risk that we we evolve into a new form of, of leadership selection through a digital ecosystem that is just a further transition from where we are? So mm. what, what do you think about that? What do you think? Do you think the risk there is or what's the good side or bad side or what, what's the guidance there, I guess? Well, I don't know. I don't know if I would pick sides. <laughs> um, uh, that's an easy way out. <laughs> but, but I mean, I also bring that. You know, bring that back to the articles of the UN Declaration too. Is yeah. that it's up for our nations to decide how we organize politically, how we govern ourselves, and uh, you know, uh, enshrine our right to self determination and self government. And so, this just gives us another tool in the bank and another option to choose from which is great because we haven't had options previously. You know, we were given, we are told to organize one way and, and we've been stuck with that. And there's Mm -hmm. been impacts of that, you know, that have continued for generations. And so now we're getting to a space where, uh, nations and, and Indian band governments and communities can can decide, is this working for us? Why is it not working for us? What other mm-hmm. options exist? Are we going to develop our own constitution? Are we going to develop our own band codes? Are we going to move to a digital environment? How do we interact with our community that lives off reserve? And mm-hmm. so um, if you look at our, our, uh, our membership uh, list, a significant portion of our band mm-hmm. lives off reserve. Yeah. And uh, in a in a kind of pre-digital environment, engaging those members uh, was quite a significant task mm-hmm. on kind of the direction where the nation wants to go. How do we interact with our uh, with our lands and with our programming and, and uh, with our rights? Um, and so for me, that's kind of an interesting conversation is 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 the opportunity now to, to kind of, and I talk about it in terms of like healing our communities, in terms of healing our communities to the point where we're no longer um, disenfranchising or marginalizing our, our, our family members and relatives that don't live on the reserve and mm-hmm. don't live in the community. Um, often for no, no uh, uh, you know, fault of their own, Mm-hmm. It's through, you know, addressing systems of poverty or going to find a job that you can't find mm-hmm. in, in your community yeah. or education yeah. or, or family or whatnot. And so now we're living in a space 
where we can actually have conversations and and uh, options that aren't you know cost prohibitive or or uh, whatnot to kind of addressing these long-standing issues. I think uh, just full disclosure, Tommy, for our listeners, my company One Feather will be supporting Lacroix and their electoral officers in their in the election. So I just want to just as just as a function of disclosure for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good disclosure to have in the show. <laughs> We talked about the importance of data ownership and, and custody of that and, and doing that in a good and authentic way. And I know it's something that, you know, we, we, we want to go down a pathway where that, uh, you know, we talk about sovereign, indigenous, digital identity, and the credential that goes around, goes along with that. And, and that that custody of that and the ownership of that needs to be held by the individual and verified by uh, either through, and, and it's, you know, back to this kind of closed system or a open public system where in the spirit of our traditional kind of ways, or at least where I come from anyways, that that um, identity is acknowledged by your aunties and your uncles and the chiefs and the family, right? And so how do we, how do, we do that? And then how do you maintain ownership and custody of that? And how does that mm-hmm. um, get used in that digital space? And, and, and um, it's a lot to wrap your head around um, because it, there's a lot of responsibility there to make that happen. But mm-hmm. I do think we're at this interesting intersection now between how we used to do things as Indigenous folks in this regard uh, with digital technologies today. And as those, mm. and as people are out there engaging you in that digital space, where do you retain the right to pull back, if you like, withdraw, mm. own, and maybe even monetize within mm-hmm. that right? Um, but certainly ownership is, um, is key because I think if we're not careful, you know, we are just feeding a machine that will just, mm-hmm. you know, has not, has no other interest other than to consume us for its own, for its own potential. Right? Mm. I mean, ownership's interesting because my in, like immediate reaction to when you say ownership, I'm like, oh, like who, who yeah. owns this? How, yeah. Like, what does that mean? Like when we talk about so much, um, that's inherent to our communities and, and significant, whether it's like our stories or our practices or our medicines or, um, or, or our names or languages or, or even, even other things like, you know, uh, decisions around land use or, but in the digital space, like our identities, so much of that isn't owned, you know, yeah. it's not owned by a person. It's owned by a community. Yeah. It's owned That's by, right. it's yeah. owned by relations. And so when you get into this kind of individualized digital space, that raises very significant questions mm-hmm. around how, how are you accountable? How, and it, I, for me, I guess it always comes back to accountability. I mean, yeah. we're, we're also, I mean, you can't have this conversation without bringing into context what's happening in like broader society. And so what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of, you know, corporations, institutions, a lot of uh, non-Indigenous societies starting to grapple with what can we do to better support Mm -hmm. uh, our Indigenous communities to reconcile, uh, to address our kind of positions of power and privilege. And so you're, you're seeing like genuinely good hearted, well-meaning attempts to kind of address Mm -hmm. this, but that also opens up space for, for grifters and for people Mm -hmm. willing to take advantage of that. And so, and so, I mean, being mindful of that, it's about accountability. It's about building accountability mechanisms, allowing 
you know, your auntie to call you out on something. And so if you're operating in a digital environment where you can act anonymously, uh, you know, yeah. without verification uh, and mm-hmm. without anyone calling to account your claims and, and then monetizing it. Yeah. That's a huge risk. And, yeah. and they still, and so how do we create a more kind of community based digital environment that builds on that accountability that has that uh, checks and balances, yeah. um, but is also allowed to grow and to change and to adapt uh, to this new environment. That's the question. And yeah, yeah. I don't know if we have an answer for that. <laughs> but, I don't either, right? Yeah. <laughs> but so we don't true, need right? an answer, too. No, it, no, it's a conversation, right. right? That's right. Can you give us your top three? Yeah. Uh, yes. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we definitely don't need to do that. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, that accountability is so key. You know, like as if I'm sitting in a big house and I was misbehaving, I'd get a whack by a stick, right? Like I knew yeah. that was coming. The minute I, you know, you'd always see it coming. Um, but also there was a, you know, public accountability out there because people would speak and 500 people would be a witness. And if somebody got up, you know, a month later and said something, you know, backwards, uh, or kind of not accurately, there would be a, you know, there'd be a immediate call out of that. Right. Mm. Um, and so people, I think you learn that, that truth and integrity, uh, and that community, right. That social fabric that knits us all together was what defined us, right. There was some risk if you took action to, unravel that or un- unweave that like people would mm-hmm. people would hold you accountable for that right yeah and, and there's consequences if you ignored yeah. that criticism and just continued acting in a certain way yeah. there were consequences on your relationships consequences yeah. uh in your relationships with your family and with your community That's and, right. yeah. and and so how do we build I don't know if consequences is the right word but yeah. accountability into digital spaces in yeah. the same degree yeah. No, I mean, the, the risk of being expelled from your community was worse than death. Like you'd rather, you'd mm-hmm. rather be, you know, be ended as opposed to be expelled. I mean, so yeah, I hear you loud and clear. And I think that's, uh, yeah. How do we do that? I don't know. How do we do that in a good way? I don't know, man. <laughs> this is the thing to your point. I don't know that we have the answers yet. We'll have to figure them out as we go. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's the question too. Like it has, is I like the different ways that we engage in digital spaces. Have they been designed to promote community accountability or have they been designed around this individuality? Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's a, that's a question for someone more experienced than me. But yeah. Well, when we have uh, six months more time <laughs> behind us, we'll, we'll bring you back on to, uh, to rediscuss and re-engage. Awesome. But in the meantime, I wanted to thank you so very much, Matthew, for coming on the show. This has been incredibly insightful. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, brother. Really, really appreciate it, for sure.